Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Mark Ryan. Mark is the author of Deep Learning with Structured Data, a book that is currently in early access with Manning and due for publication in the spring of 2020. Mark, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be here. Awesome. Let's get started by talking a little bit about your background and, in particular, deep learning with structured data. That is a topic that uh, you know folks are starting to talk about. Uh, and in fact, uh, via the Meetup Group in association with uh, the podcast, we have uh, a fair amount of experience exploring this through the fast AI study groups that we do. Uh, that's a big part of uh, one of the lessons in in that course. But I'd love to get a sense for, you know, how you came to be interested in this particular topic enough to write a book about it. Sure, sure, Sam. So my uh, academic background is from uh, artificial intelligence a couple of winters ago. So I uh, <laughs> studied, studied at U of T with uh, Graham Hurst. Uh, back in the late 80s, and it was all symbolic AI back then. And there were some interesting use cases, but you know, it, it to a large extent, it uh, it didn't work. And uh, I went to work for IBM. had a had a great career there. Learned a great deal. Spent a lot of time in uh, DB2, the relational database product from IBM. And about 2016, it became evident to me that artificial intelligence was starting to work. Mm-hmm. There were things that were actually working, became general general knowledge, and uh, that reignited the spark in me. So uh, I did uh, Andrew Eng's intro course and the Fast AI course. So we had that as my introduction to uh, to deep learning, and I was very interested in deep learning and the promise of that. And one of the things I found a little bit frustrating is a lot of the use cases, particularly outside of the context of the Fast Fast AI course, were to do with images or uh, or audio. They weren't structured data. And what I was looking for was, say, can I find a way to use this in my, my day-to-day work? Because this looks like it'll be very useful, and I wanted to, to learn more about it. And the best way to learn about it is to use data sets that you're familiar with. So uh, when I, I did the Fast AI course, and this would have been version one of the course, so it's been through a couple of iterations since then. Yep. And there's the section on doing deep learning with, with structured data. And that really sparked my curiosity. I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. So I began to look around for some code to have as sort of a starter kit to get to get going. And it wasn't easy to find. But uh, there were some uh, Kaggle competitions where people had been working on structured data sets and applying it to deep learning. And some very elegant little kernels like that – Rothman were, stores and, and the like? Exactly, exactly. And I was really impressed by uh, some of the work that I saw there. It was very elegant, very, very straightforward. And, and good for me at the stage I was at then to get started, start doing some coding. And at the time, I was responsible for the support organization for DB2. So there were there's tons of data there, hundreds of tickets coming in every day, lots and lots of data. And I thought, you know, it would be good if we could apply uh, deep learning to this to sort of see, can we do some predictions that are useful? So uh, I built up a prototype model to predict how long a ticket would take to get closed. And uh, that, you know, seemed it worked reasonably well. 
And then I uh, did another uh, project, sort of taking what I've learned to predict duty manager calls. So those are cases where a client reaches a point of frustration and says, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm gonna pick up, I want to pick up the phone and get something happening with this particular problem. So uh, applying what I'd seen from some of the kernels in Kaggle and uh, using the data that was available, created these prototypes. And I've learned a lot doing that. And they were, uh, I, you know, I think they, they, they turned out fairly well. But one of the problems with, uh, with those prototypes was that the data was obviously proprietary. I couldn't share that. And there's a very strong ethic, as you know, in, in machine learning and data science to share results. Mm-hmm. So I started to look for a more, uh, I'd say a general data set that I could use to apply deep learning to structured data. And uh, I've written a few blog posts on Medium about my experience with the the predicting time to resolution and predicting duty manager calls. And Manning got in touch with me and said, would you like to write a book? Kind of uh, pulled this together. And I thought, well, that that sounds interesting. Sure. Hmm. Uh, It has been a lot of work. It's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I've I've certainly learned a lot in the course of doing that. And uh, one of the things I've done, done is create a, uh, a, a f- sort of a full end-to-end example using an open data set, which is to do with uh, streetcars in Toronto. Toronto's my, uh, my hometown now, and it has a very extensive streetcar network. And these are a uh, light rail uh, system that runs on the regular roads, and they're great. They're efficient. They're relatively cheap to run. They're cheap to uh, create, much cheaper than subways. The problem is because they share the roads with regular traffic, if they break down or there's a delay, it really exacerbates gridlock. So the city of Toronto publishes a data set that describes all of the delays that have happened for the last five years. And I thought, well, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and try to create a simple deep learning model to analyze this data and see if we can come up with predictions to uh, you know, predict where there are going to be streetcar delays and hopefully be able to prevent them. So that was kind of the the uh, the path I took, and that's how that was the genesis uh, for the book. And so, should I assume that uh, that that worked? That you were able to uh, come up with a model that predicted the streetcar delays or predicted streetcar delays uh, with that data set? Yeah, it does. It does a decent job. It's not a huge data set. There are about ninety thousand records right now. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's some, some limitations, but certainly for the purposes of, of helping somebody who's going to be taking a trip, it's, you know, the, the accuracy is, uh, is, is good enough to be, uh, to be useful. But more importantly, for the, in terms of uh, as a learning exercise, I, I think it's, it's, it's useful because it's an open data set. It's big, but not so big. You have to deal with kind of the problems of, uh, of big data. It ha- it's very messy. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to be done to prepare the data, which I think is a is a is a good learning experience, and uh, it has various different kinds of data. There's text data, there's categorical data, there's some continuous data. So it has a lot of the. It's it's big enough to be interesting, but not so big that it's overwhelming. And I think it's you know it kind of makes a, a decent end to end example to to go through the go through the topic. Awesome, awesome. Uh, jumping back to the couple of projects that you worked on uh, when you were at IBM, uh, in particular, this looking at how long it took to close tickets. When I think of a trouble ticket use case, and when I think of that trouble ticket use case, I think of, you know, not just 
uh, structured data as being useful, but also the content of the ticket itself. So textual data, more like the application of NLP. Uh, did you use only metadata about the tickets to predict the close time, or did you also use uh, that content? That's a great question. So I did use the content. There's uh, all the tickets had a description. The description could sometimes it'd be two lines like, you know, you suck, a little bit more elaborate than that. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes it would be a paragraph of, of lots of detail. But that description was really essential because that's kind of the initial customer's sense of, you know, what, what they found. And um, that was, we had a, a simple, the model included a simple uh, recurrent neural network to deal with that data. So it uh, the, the the that text field was was tokenized, uh, used embeddings, and then there was a layer, uh, an RNN layer that was applied in the overall model to uh, to take that that text into account. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting the the difference because they did some experiments of including that as a feature and then excluding it because it was it was fairly expensive. It, it added some some length to the time it took to train the model. And it made a, a reasonable difference. Like it was, you know, between three and four percent the accuracy if this if this field was included, and that really excited me. I thought that's that's really something. And the other thing is that these and that, descriptions weren't all. So the particular field is the description field. So all of the text of the ticket. It, no, it's just the description. The, the text of the ticket was uh, wasn't available uh, to me at that time. So it wasn't oh, the, the okay. full back and forth. Sometimes that like there, there could be, you know, the equivalent of a uh, hundred pages of text. So all I was dealing with text wise was the, was the description. So it could be up to 500, 500, 600 characters altogether. Got it. Got it. And so that's typically the, the textual description of the issue, either as provided by the initial, uh, customer who's, who's submitting the ticket or whoever the support rep is that is taking their call. It would be, it would be always be the customer. And that was, in, okay. it was intentional to say, and that was part of the whole idea of the model was to only take data that was available when the ticket first hit our system. Okay. So, and that description would be there. There were other things obviously like uh, whether the ticket had changed in severity that wouldn't be available when the ticket was first opened. Cause that's you know kind of a, a data leakage problem. You start to, peek over and see, oh, that looks, you know, you use, use data that you don't actually have available to you when you're making the prediction. But the textual description of the problem coming from the client was always there when the ticket was open. And that was the, that was one of the uh, features that was fed into the model. Okay. And so you, you said that the importance of this feature, you know, this, this feature's presence gave you an additional 3% uh, increase in accuracy that is, you know, relative to what without it, how, how much of an impact uh, did it have? So that was the, in the, in terms of the absolute accuracy. So I think at that time it was probably going from 73 to 76% accuracy, okay. leaving, taking that, taking that field out or, or leaving it in. Uh, which I think says a lot about uh, the, the power, I guess, of doing deep learning with the structured data that adding the text, uh, the descriptive text of the ticket only gave you an incremental 3% accuracy in terms of predicting how long it'll take to close the ticket. Is that reasonable? Is that your interpretation as well? Yeah, that's, that's right. I guess at the time I saw it, you know, it's, it's relative where you are. I was, I was very happy it had that increase, but you're right that the, um, the portion of the data that would have traditionally been dealt with, with deep learning was only one of the feeds that was going into the model. And that feed by itself, while it made a difference, it, it was 
a relatively small proportion of the difference in terms of the accuracy. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought that without the text, you, it would be very hard to solve this uh, to solve this problem with any any degree of accuracy. Interesting. And out of curiosity, did you try training a model only on the descriptive text to see if uh, you were able to to get any results? I'm wondering if there's a scenario where uh, if you didn't have it, you know, if you added it, it only gave you 3% incremental accuracy, but you could get a good part of the way there if you didn't have any of the other things either. That's a really good question. I didn't try that, but that's uh, that's an interesting question. I, I guess in this, and it may be kind of a primitive way of thinking about it, but because there were, a, I guess, you know, there were another uh, 13 or 14 features that were available and sometimes this text was fairly short. I thought, well, this will make it'll it'll have some impact, but by itself, it probably wouldn't be enough to actually come up with a, a reasonable, a reasonably accurate uh, description. And then just looking at some of the at, at some of the descriptions, they were pretty um, pretty cryptic. But mm-hmm. but something I just wanted to mention is that uh, these descriptions weren't even all in English. So they were uh, there were a fair number in Japanese or Chinese, and just given the aggregated size of the data set. It wasn't massively huge. It was about a, about a little over a million records. It, uh, it, still, it still made a difference. Like it still provided some, some benefit. And I see that. I know some people are kind of critical of the idea of using deep learning, kind of uh, backing up the dump truck of data and just tipping it over and seeing, seeing what comes out. But at the same time, it was, I, was, I was impressed by what could be done without doing a whole lot of monkeying around with the data. It was just sort of taking the the structured data as it was, applying a relatively simple model to it, getting you know not not bad results. Uh, I was I was impressed. I was impressed by that, and particularly because there had been so little, other than the fast AI course, so little uh, spoken about in terms of using deep learning with with structured data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we tend to think of you know, rightly so deep learning as requiring a ton of data. Uh, it's certainly exacerbated by the fact that, you know, some of the things that deep learning is really good at are, you know, images, which can be large speech, which can be, uh, large files. Structured data can be a lot more compact, but when we think of the number of, you know, rows or examples, uh, that you're feeding into a model is, do you require less data from a examples or rows perspective to train a deep learning model accurately on structured data, or is it kind of about the same, um, but the data is just more compact? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I, I'd say that the, to get a you know sort of the, the rule of thumb you, that you need tens of thousands of records to have a starting point is probably applicable. Uh, as applicable to structured data as it would be to unstructured data. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the th- it's interesting. One of the things I heard is a critique because certainly there, there are people who said like don't don't use deep learning with structured data. And I'm thinking, well, well, why? Because that's where my problem space is. That's where I'm, the job I'm trying to do is all about structured data. Yeah, don't use that. Use use XGBoost. Use use something use something simpler. And I said, well, well, why? And some of the answers I got back were, well, the structured data sets are too small. Like they're not big enough to actually apply deep learning to. And I think that's a bit of a canard because there are some huge structured data sets. There are data sets certainly with, uh, in, in the, the world of DB2, which is all about structured data, so t- structured tabular data, sure. commonly, had, commonly had tables with billions of, of records in them. Mm-hmm. 
So that that objection, I think, is a little bit uh, it's a little bit short sighted. Obviously, you're not going to get great results with tiny data sets, whether it's structured or unstructured. But I think as as an objection to attempting to use uh, deep learning with structured data, the data set size really is it's not not material to the decision about whether it's worthwhile or not. Did you attempt to apply XGBoost or any other method to this kind of problem? I did. I did. So I tried XGBoost on two of those problems that I described. And it was and I guess one thing that is that is true, the results were not significantly better for deep learning. So I think that's one of and that's one of the arguments people say, well, it's not a great idea to use deep learning with structured data, is if there's a simpler way to do it. That isn't that doesn't have the complexities or the opaqueness of, of deep learning. Then why not do that? Right. And I think there's I know there, there's some something to be said for that. But at the same time, if I'm you know looking looking down the road a little bit, the amount of effort that it takes to get a, a reasonable results with XGBoost versus deep learning, particularly the human effort required for it, I'm I'm not convinced that XGBoost is going to, for example, is going to be the winner there. As there's been so much attention on the efficiency of tools related to deep learning, the libraries are getting better. The uh, uh, TensorFlow 2.0 coming out, making things much more straightforward and and, and simpler. I, I think some of the objections are are a little bit out of date, and there are certainly cases. I don't, there are certainly cases where uh, a non-deep learning approach could produce better results and maybe the right way to go. I guess the argument I'm making is that. People keep an open mind about applying deep learning to structured data, and I think, particularly as uh, the, you know, the the human cost that's required to get results becomes a bigger and bigger factor, we may find that deep learning has more applicability to uh, to structured data. To keep an open mind about it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really interesting point. I think we've got an entire conference coming up on the tooling and and technology platforms that are allowing enterprises to increasingly automate uh, and make their ability to deliver deep learning models into production, uh, as well as traditional machine learning models into production more uh, quickly and efficiently. And I think that's only going to serve to reduce the the barriers. And uh, as you mentioned, the frameworks are getting more powerful and easier to use. And so now you've got this, uh, you know, yes, kind of a more opaque method, but one that is highly uh, automated in a sense that you don't need a lot of manual feature engineering to get good results versus one that requires a lot of human investment to get uh, the, the same level of results or comparable results. Um, you know, as that barrier to entry on the deep learning side is reduced, you know, in addition to all the the software tools and and frameworks that are improving, you've got, you know, hardware that's making it cheaper to build these models on the compute side. Uh, that's really going to tip the balances. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really believe that's the case. And I think, and this is something in, in the fast AI course, um, that Jeremy Howard said that this topic, people have kind of scratched the surface of it. And I think there's much more to be done there. Um, and obviously my approach, I'm trying to, it's sort of a meat and potatoes, trying to solve problems approach, but I'd hope that there were some research as well. People looking at it from a, from a research point of view are saying what can be done. And, and the other thing that I think uh, structured data has 
there's sort of by definition, structured data has very rich metadata. So you have a, a database where everything, all of the, the tables in the database are described in tables. And it's very, it's all tooled and um, instrumented to, to be able to see what, what everything that's there in the database. And I think there's some potential for work that's uh, kind of exploratory. I could see something like a web crawling to go through a database and see, are there, is there potential for a useful model here? And you can see a situation where as the, you know, the cost of compute drops, have something that's running in the background and sort of trying all sorts of different combinations of features uh, in a large database sale and maybe get some interesting results there. And being able to do that, and that's something that structured data gives you that you don't get from unstructured, what you don't necessarily get from unstructured data where there isn't that sort of rich metadata describing what's what's there. Uh, we'll come back to the structure in, in just a moment, but one of the you mentioned one of the points that Jeremy makes in the fast.ai course, and that is that in, in many of these examples, uh, particularly the Kaggle ones, like I think it was Rothman Stores uh, competition. You know, when you look at the the leaderboard, I forget the details. I'm going to botch them. I think you know of, of the top you know, the top N, a good number of them, uh, if not the top spots, were uh, folks that, you know, applied deep learning-based approaches. And the the key takeaway is, uh, and this is, you know, them competing against data scientists with, you know, oodles of experience in, uh, in this particular retail domain. Uh, and, um, you know, in many cases, folks with no domain experience plus deep learning were able to outperform uh, folks that, you know, brought domain experience and, you know, handcrafted models uh, to bear. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's, it's a good observation. He's, and, and, you know, Kaggle in a way can be, it's, there's some artificial aspects of it, but it's sort of, it's raw capitalism and what works best rises to the top. So, yeah, I think there's there's potential there. And um, some of the big players are, are doing this. And there are applications that uh, I've heard of uh, Google and Amazon are doing with, uh, with structured data. But it just doesn't seem to be something that's really front and center in terms of what people, as both as they're learning about deep learning and uh, where the research is, it seems to be much more on the, uh, the unstructured, that is the non-tabular data side. One of the other objections I've heard is that there's this heuristic thrown out there that about 80% of the data in the world is unstructured. So, you know, if that's the case, if it's only like one fifth of, of data is, is structured, then, you know, how interesting is it to apply that? It's still a lot our, of data. Our, it's a lot of data. And <laughs> I, I know from experience from working with DB2, I know that the, you know, the world runs on it. Every bank, every insurance company, every, every government depends on on structured data uh, you know re- relational database may not be sexy but it's uh, it underpins our our modern lives so mm-hmm. there's a lot of important data that's uh, that's structured as well even if the volume isn't as much as unstructured data mm-hmm. uh, you were making the point that it's uh, a the application of deep learning to structured data in particular is a topic that doesn't get a lot of play out there and it made me think of uh, embeddings, which is one of the key techniques that are used in applying deep learning to structured data. When I first heard about embeddings through the FAST.AI course, um, 
I don't know, a couple of years ago now, you didn't hear a lot about it. It was in a couple of obscure papers and now everybody's doing it and talking about it. And it's almost, you know, passe, right? It's just a tool that we, we, we pull out of the toolbox to uh, solve a great deal, a great number of problems. Um, There was just an article I saw yesterday about uh, Stitch Fix, the, the, kind of clothing styling in a box subscription company um, created a model. Uh, I was talking about some of the different models that they use internally. And uh, a lot of them are based on style embeddings and things like that. And so kind of in that vein, I suspect that we'll start to hear a lot more about this. And uh, the fast AI course is just kind of ahead of its time once again. Um, But uh, why don't we take a second to drill into some of the, you know, how it works and kind of the details that you'll be talking about in the book. It's a Manning uh, book, so I'm assuming it's going to be kind of roll up the sleeves and kind of dig into like how to make all this stuff work. And I, I would assume that embeddings is a, a big, uh, you know, one of the chapters in that book somewhere. Is that is that the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, dealing with, uh, I, I guess, one of the, this, this may sound a bit trite, but the, when I first heard about one-hot encoding, I thought, I hate this idea. And I know it, I know it's necessary. I know it's something that, that you know we have to use, but I thought, wow, you know, this is, if you've got a category with more than a dozen values in it, this just gets crazy. You have mm-hmm. these huge, huge, you know, uh, Pandas data frames, for example. And embeddings, uh, give you a way you can you can you know assign integer um, encodings to the values in, in a categorical feature, and then use embeddings to to learn the relationships. So you, you get away from having to use uh, a one-hot encoding and the inefficiencies that are involved there. So um, yeah, so I just just in terms of what you said about embedding, I completely agree. It's a it's a very hot topic, and the idea I think the uh, the idea that something that came out of NLP and has more broad applications is really interesting, and the idea that you kind of you, you kind of get uh, unsupervised learning not for free, but as as a as some of some of the exhaust fume from doing uh, uh, supervised learning solving a supervised learning problem, and you can use the embeddings to come up with categorizations like you know movie categorizations for uh, uh, Netflix, that kind of thing. That's, that's really interesting. You get a bit of a two-for-one value. Uh, one of the things that comes up uh, frequently in our uh, fast AI study groups uh, as a, a point of confusion when we're talking about the structured data uh, topic is kind of the relationship between embeddings from an embedding space perspective and the way it's used in NLP and the embeddings that we use in these structured data problems. Do you have a, like, is that real clear to you? Do you have a great way of explaining that? Well, I think, I guess with a, if with an NLP, you can have, uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands, millions of values, you know, just the number of individual words that are each with their own individual embeddings. And then in a, in a structured data problem where you're leaving aside, uh, textual features, just talking about categorical features, you're going to have a smaller number of individual values. So the um, the embedding space, you may have a, a, a smaller dimension, you may have, a, uh, if I can say, a simpler embedding space than you would dealing with NLP. But the, the fundamental idea uh, is the same. 
And uh, I guess to get back to your question before about about how this sort of how things work. So as I mentioned, the book has the Toronto streetcar data set as the, the problem that's being solved. So go through the process of cleaning that up. So getting getting rid of uh, bad values. One of the, the things that, that I've learned over the course of doing this was uh, some uh, geocoding. So there are address values that sort of describe where the problem occurred, where did the streetcar break down, where was there a delay? And those address values are just completely messy. They're they're totally free form. You know, they say uh, young uh, uh, young and queen. They're they, they're misspelled. They're references to to sort of known areas in Toronto. So it's great. It's a very interesting problem to have. And uh, I took advantage of Google's uh, geocoding API to turn those values into latitude and longitude values. So that's probably that's the feature that required the most the most effort to get something. Uh, coming out the other end. And then for the categorical values, so that would be, for example, the streetcar route, the vehicle number, the day of the week, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. Uh, those get uh, get translated to integer IDs. And then, so all, all, the, all the categorical values get, uh, get translated that way. Uh, text fields, individual uh, words get uh, translated in, into IDs. And then those get uh, prepared to be fed into uh, a, a fairly simple Keras model. But the, I guess the, the thing that is, is a bit of an innovation is that the model is the layers in the model are automatically defined based on the columns that are in the table, the input table. So if there are any, all of the categorical columns get a set of layers in the model, they get an embedding layer and a number of other layers. If there are any text columns in 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 the input data set, they get uh, they get embeddings. They also get a, a, an RNN layer, and then continuous values uh, like uh, temperature uh, just kind of flow through. So uh, that model gets built up layer by layer automatically based on the the columns that are in the input uh, the input data set, and uh, that's you know in a nutshell how the how the model gets uh, gets put together. So this automated generation of the model is this based on a tool that you've built this is just just python code so there there are uh there's part of the code is identifying which which columns of of the overall data set which columns are going to be used to train the model and then saying which columns are breaking them into three categories uh, categorical so those would be things like um the day of the week a continuous yep. like temperature or time duration and text so a, a description of a, of a of a problem for example it sounds like you've built this tool that you point at a, a data set and it will almost like auto ml i create a model that at least as a starting place for making some predictions on the structured data as opposed to you know the book walking you through like how you would perform this analysis by hand that, that's right. So the book provides the, the idea of the book is to generalize a little bit. So the the streetcar problem is used as an example, but saying more generally, here's how you deal with it. But the intention of the code is that it could be applied to other structured data sets. Mm-hmm. That it wouldn't be limited. You, that somebody could fairly quickly take a, a different structured data set and apply the code and get uh, try it out to see how it would work with a different a different structured data set with different columns and different uh, a different mix of categorical text and continuous columns. Okay, cool. And how 
How are the chapters structured? Are they uh, different features of this? Uh, you know, are you building up this Python uh, code, or do you assume it from the beginning and you're, you know, talking more theoretically about these topics? How, how do you organize things? Um, so Manning's pretty big on being practical. So they've they certainly encouraged me to, to stay close to the code. And this is one of the things, and I, and I know that you've uh, and you've sponsored a number of uh, sessions going through the fast AI course. So you've seen that ethic there of really trying stuff that, you know, you get as soon as you can try to apply it in code. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to do that in the book as well. So introduce bits and pieces. So talk about the pandas data frames is one of the essential items. So I spent some time on that. Talk about the data set, talk about the different steps take you need to take to clean up the data set, including the geocoding problem that I talked about before. And then uh, a chapter on the how the uh, the layers of the Keras model are are automatically put together, and that's that's one of the ones that's not uh, that, that I'm working on currently. Will be released a little bit later in the year. Uh, there'll be a uh, a section, as you said, talking in a bit more detail on uh, embeddings, where, what role they play. And then the other thing I really want to do, and this is this has been quite a challenge, is uh, have a uh, as end-to-end -end a process as possible. So be able to talk about here's how you deploy the model and here's how you get a little a little website that would let you pop in the description of a particular trip and get the prediction back whether or not that trip would incur a delay. Because that's one of the things that I found in, in terms of the my learning process, there was an awful lot that kind of took you up to the point where you had actually, you had trained the model and had some sense of its performance and then things got a little bit sketchy about how would you actually deploy it? How would you mm -hmm. how would you get it into a, into not even production? Just get it to the point where somebody else could use it or play with it. So I wanted I definitely want to spend some time talking about some options for doing that and taking the reader through a, a particular uh, process for for deploying the model. Oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, and so the you you've kind of suggested this, but the early access process uh, or program at uh, Manning is one in which you are kind of incrementally posting chapters uh, of the book and folks can kind of buy in early and get access to these chapters. Is that right? That's right. So they get they get access to the book and they get the the completed book. The other part of it is it's supposed to be a two-way thing as well. There's the opportunity to make comments and to frame the 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 book either to say things that are that need to be corrected or or adjusted or make recommendations for topics that need to be covered later on in the book so people who get involved early who take advantage of this have a chance to really not just be uh sort of passive participants but also contribute and be you know be, be part of making the, the this book or other books that are in this program uh successful and meet the needs of the people who will be reading them that's awesome. Yeah, one of the things that really jumps out at me in this conversation, uh, you know, we keep kind of coming back to uh, fast AI. I think because you know, it's, you know, I've seen it impact a lot of people, um, myself included, and you know, I'm seeing in this conversation, you know, how you, you know, the, the echoes of that course are clear, and you know what you're doing here, and kind of extending uh what you got out of that course now into a book and and that's exactly you know how the course is kind of designed that you you know you there's a lot of 
uh, self-direction required to go through the course and really get the most out of it. And a lot of that is taking the, taking what's taught and applying it to, uh, to things. And so that is, uh, awesome to see. It is a great course. It's a, it's a fantastic, um, opportunity. Uh, I really think I learned so much going through it and also seeing it, it, it comes up in all sorts of different contexts as well. I mean, uh, in the uh, sessions that, that you've sponsored, uh, other people learning about, about deep learning. And I think it's not just the, the course, it's also the, the approach to teaching. That's saying, like, get, get, you know, get to the, the coding as quickly as possible and try different stuff. And it's, it's pretty, pretty bold as well and making a number of uh, significant changes in the platform being used. That's a, that's a lot of work and there's risk in that, but I uh, got to tip, tip the hat to the team that puts that course together. I think they've done a really, a really, really fantastic job and had a really big impact uh, uh, on the, on the industry and uh, on, on people's, you know, on people's lives. People have, have learned a lot. And it's been a, it's been a ladder up for a lot of people into, into a world that's really exciting and really interesting and, and really important. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would encourage anyone who, you know, hears us gushing over this course and is interested in, <laughs> uh, in taking the course to do so. And, um, uh, Jeremy Howard, uh, who teaches the course always says that taking the course is best done with other people. The people that do that are more successful. And that's really why we, with the support of uh, a bunch of very dedicated volunteers have been doing, uh, I don't can't even count now how many kind of cohorts of folks we've done through the various versions of the course. Uh, there are several versions and then a part one and a part two, but hundreds of people now have participated in our study groups to, uh, just get support in working through these courses. If, you know, that's interesting to you, encourage, uh, anyone who's listening to visit twimlai.com slash meetup, sign up for the meetup and express interest in the study groups. And if we don't, uh, currently have one running when you do that, you know, raise your hand in the, in the Slack channel in our Slack and, and express some interest and, uh, you know, we're, we tend to kick these things off, you know, when folks are interested in them. So, uh, with that, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us about the book. It sounds super interesting. Thank you, Sam. And Sam, I want to also thank you for the podcast. I've learned so much, been a faithful listener for, for several years now, and it's been a, a great asset. I learned a great deal. So thank you very much for, uh, for all the work you do to get the podcast out. Really appreciate it. Wonderful to hear that. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.